You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning to you. Uh, it's great to be together. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to welcome you and say it's really a joy to have you with us. We're going through a study of the book of Judges. And so if you have a Bible or uh, a device, a phone, whatever, uh, if you could turn to Judges chapter 3, uh, that would be great. We're just teaching through this book. It's, it's, not a, it's really not probably a commonly taught book because it's a challenging book in many ways for us. Um, but it is a, it's, a, it's a book that really shows us the Lord in a glorious way. I also want to welcome those uh, online. understand we are doing a live stream today uh, at this service, so it's great to have you with us today as well. Well, Judges chapter 3, we're just going to look at a short passage, verses uh, 7 through 11. Normally, we're looking at a chapter Sometimes two chapters in Judges, but this will be really short, and as we go through it, I trust you'll understand why we're only focusing on a brief passage. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The older I get, and I'm not super old, but I can see it from here. Uh, the older I get, the more forgetful. I get. I think there's some science behind that that explains why that is the case. But my forgetfulness is is minor. You know, I forget my keys, or I forget uh, maybe I forget somebody's name that I would have remembered more quickly when I was young. Uh, for me, book titles, I'm terrible. Someone say, "What are you reading?" I can tell you the author. I can tell you the cover of the book, cover the what color it is. But I often forget titles for some reason. I don't know. I'm reading some book about this. Um, I forget decisions and so uh, that we make as a pastoral team, not big ones, but so Tim is our administrator and he's hired to remember, at least for Bob and me, he's retired to remember for us if nobody else. So, hey, Tim, did, what, what did we decide about so-and-so? You know, I'll ask him and uh, he's there to remind me. So my everyday forgetfulness, which isn't huge, it's minor, but it doesn't really affect my life. And it hasn't really affected others' lives in any negative way. But sometimes forgetting has serious consequences. And in fact, sometimes forgetting, forgetting something can be really, really costly. And if you wonder about that, you can ask a man named Stefan Thomas, uh, is a man who uh, forgot 
tw- uh, like nine years ago, forgot his Bitcoin password. And the way Bitcoin works, from what I understand, is there's no one out there, there's no way that you can receive a reminder of what your password is. And so, you know, we all forget passwords, right? Well, since 2012, when he got a bunch of Bitcoin, he was an early Bitcoin fanatic, his account has amassed a value as of Friday of $250 million. A quarter of a billion dollars is one password away. You get 10 tries before you're locked out permanently, and he's tried eight times. So the news interviewed him about forgetting his password, and he says, while time heals all wounds, the moments he first realized he couldn't access his cryptocurrency account were harrowing, to say the least. There were sort of a couple weeks where I was desperate. I don't have any other word to describe it. Desperate, he told KGO-TV. You sort of question your own worth. I mean, what kind of person does this, Forget something like this? Thomas said he has used up to eight of his ten tries to get the password right, having lost the paper he wrote it down on in 2012. And people around the world have tried to help him out. One person suggested, have you tried the word password? Gee, thanks. I got ten shots. I'm probably not using that as one of them. Some people have recommended mediums or psychics or prophets that he could talk to. Some people are suggesting to try memory-enhancing drugs. Eventually, Thomas reached a really big milestone in his life where he, quote, realized he was not going to define his self-worth going forward by how much he had in his bank account. That's convenient after what he is facing He goes on to say uh, what he's learned from this. No doubt, at least somewhat as a result of his experience, Thomas now believes there's a good reason that traditional financial institutions exist as opposed to open source money exchange solutions like Bitcoin. By the way, this is why young people buy Bitcoin and old people don't because old people forget their passwords. And so this is the reason He says, this whole idea of being your own bank, let me put it this way. Do you make your own shoes? The reason we have banks is that we don't want to deal with all those things that banks do. He forgot his password, and it had serious, costly consequences for him. The book of Judges is about forgetting The whole book is about what happens when you forget the most important thing to remember. What happens when, as a believer, you forget God? It is the most costly forgetfulness imaginable, more costly than forgetting your Bitcoin password. And that's what stands out in the passage we read today. Look back at verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. I want to walk through this passage, which is very simple, and talk about three things that happened here. One, God's people forget. Two, God's people suffer. And lastly, God's people are saved. They forget, they suffer, 
and they are saved. First of all, God's people forget. Now, this is not like forgetting your password. When the Bible says forgetting God, it means something else. Uh, Forgetting the Lord God means that they are no longer living with a vibrant awareness of who God is. It's not like they forgot his name. It's it's not like they forgot anything he had done, but they, they were no longer living with a real awareness of who he is, what he's really like. They were no longer living with an awareness of his character. So, for instance, they no longer sort of remember or live in the good of the fact that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. I mean, they are in the promised land at this point, and it's all because he made a promise generations, hundreds of years ago, to Abraham, and he's been faithful to his promises, and yet they no longer lean on him because they forgot that he's really faithful. They forgot that God is powerful, and he delivers us. He frees us from our our slavery. They forgot that, you know what, he took on the greatest human power on the planet, Pharaoh, and he freed all his people from slavery. They're not living in the good of, they, they certainly remember that fact. They're aware of that story, but it has no impact on their heart. It has no impact on their mind. It doesn't affect how they live their lives on a daily basis. They've forgotten that God delivers. And God is reminding them in this book, don't forget. In chapter 2, when it's revealed that the people did not settle the land like God called them to, he brought them into Canaan, he gave them the land, he told them to drive the Canaanites out, and they failed to do that. They didn't do what he told them to. And when he comes to them to correct them lovingly, he doesn't say, why didn't you do what I told you to do? Why did you mess up? Why did you fail? That's not what he says. Here's what he says. Uh, he said to them uh, in, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. When he comes to say, why did you fail? What does he say to them? Don't you remember me? You don't remember that I keep my promises, that I'm powerful. Remember what I did for you. In the Bible, when we read of forgetting God, again, it's not that we have a lack of recall, if you know him. It's not that you have a lack of recall, but it's rather a statement about our heart. They forgot God. This says something about the condition of their heart. Forgetting God means that God isn't as real to me anymore. That's what it means. That at one time, God was real. At one time, the stories were life to me. At one time, worship was invigorating to me. At one time, the word of God brought joy and hope to me, but not anymore. You see, now he, they, they've forgotten, and so their devotion has waned. Their undivided allegiance is gone. At one time, God was so real and so tangible and so present, but not anymore. But the text tells us something is very real to them now. The Baals and the Asherah, verse 9. They forgot God and they served the Baals and the Asherah, the idols of the land. Listen, when we forget about God, we always go for an alternative. 
Our, we're created to be worshipers. We're created to trust and lean on God. And when we turn from him, we will find someone or something else to trust in and rely on and, and look to for our security. So here's what's kind of happening here. They're looking for an alternative. It's like, yeah, God did some stuff in the past. We know he got us into the land. We know he sustained us in the wilderness. We know he did that thing where he gave us his law at Mount Sinai. They, they, they know God did some stuff, but they have immediate needs. We need crops. Uh, we need children. We need our animals to be fertile so that they have offspring, so that we can farm so God's great for what he did for our parents and our grandparents, you know, but we got a need right now. We need some crops. And so they begin to look around the land, and they say, boy, these Canaanites, you know, uh, look what they do. Look, look what they do. God, they're getting what they need. Their crops are looking pretty good. And what are they doing? Well, they're all looking to Baal, who is the god of fertility, And he seems to be providing for them pretty well. And by the way, we sort of like their lifestyle. You know, God was great. He did some great things. But one thing about him, he was always strict. And might we say oppressive, especially his sexual ethics. They were oppressive. Like you got to be married and that's it. No sex, but one one married partner of the opposite sex, that's pretty restrictive. We're looking at our neighbors, and the guys that I know in the neighborhood in Canaan, the Canaanites, here's what they do. We talked about this last week. They go down to Baal's shrine, and they sleep with a bunch of women. They sleep with the temple prostitutes, and when they do that, Baal blesses them and gives them crops. They enjoy themselves. They're free. They enjoy themselves, and they get blessed. And their lives look pretty good. I mean, we were warned the Canaanites are bad. But now that we look at them, I don't know. They don't seem so bad. They forget Yahweh, their God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. They forget him. They think he's oppressive. And they look to the Baals. And they turn away. In forgetting God, they have also forgotten their own story. I mean, here's a big question. They're in the promised land. We reviewed the whole Bible uh, two weeks ago. We reviewed the whole Bible up until this point that got them in the promised land. So they're in the promised land, and here's the big question. Why are you in the promised land? Why are you here? And they forgot the answer to that. The answer is because God promised a guy named Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would give him a land, that he would make him a nation, and from that land and from that people, there would come blessing to all the nations of the world. That's why they're there. They're there to live for God. They're there to build an alternative society that's built on justice and righteousness. They're to live a different life in obedience to his word, his law, so that the nations who look on would say there's something distinct about them and they would advertise, they would demonstrate the glory of God. That's why they're there. But instead of living according to God's word, instead of remembering what he's done, instead of celebrating and delighting in his grace and his work, they're chasing the same idols that the people around them are. So there's no distinction. There's no example. There's no demonstration. They cannot bless the nations. They cannot be a blessing to the nations unless they live differently from the nations in order to demonstrate the greatness of God. So they've lost their whole purpose for being in the land. They, they don't have the right answer to this question, why are you here? 
And that's a question every one of us have. Why are you here? And we see what happens here. Forgetting God means they forget his story. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one generation to the other. He's the God who freed them from Egypt. He's the God who sustained them in the wilderness. He's the God that gave them the law on Sinai. He's the God that used Joshua to get them into the land, to to tear down Jericho miraculously and give them the land that he promised. He's that God, and they have forgotten his story, which means they have forgotten their own God-given story. When you forget God, you not only forget what he's done, but you forget what he's called you to do. You forget your purpose, which means that we chase idols like they're doing and write our own story. The story they're writing is God did some nice stuff in the, in the past, but look, these are modern times. This is, we're not talking about what happened in grandpa's generation. These are modern times, and we're looking around at the world and the people around us, and they seem to be doing pretty good, and we like their lifestyle, and it makes sense. And so we're chasing that, the Baals and the Asherah. And so now what they do is they begin to say that we'll just write our own story. Yeah, God did all that stuff, but we're, you know, we're free to live how we want. They forget God. Number two, God's people suffer. Look at verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. I'm just going to call him that. Uh, Cushan, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan for eight years. So God is angry because they've turned from him. Why is that? Is God just sort of petty? Is God just sort of rash? No. God made an exclusive relationship with Israel, and, and now they have turned from that covenant, and God is jealous, not jealous like petty, holy jealousy. He has a relationship with them. They've gone another direction. They're headed to destruction, and so he, uh, in anger, wants to win them, woo them back, as it were, and so what he does is he sells them under the king of Mesopotamia, and they are ruled over the king of Mesopotamia, Kushan. This follows a cycle. We saw, if you weren't here last week, we saw a cycle, and here it is, of how the book of Judges works. So Israel served the Lord. That happened before we got here. Uh, Israel falls into sin and idolatry. We just saw that. Israel is oppressed. That's Cushan. He comes in. God gives them over to Cushan. Cushan enslaves them for eight years. Israel cries out to the Lord. That's coming in a minute. Uh, God raises up a judge. That's coming in a minute, and then they are delivered. So this cycle happens throughout the book of Judges, and in the often story we're reading today, it happens exactly. This is really a general pattern. Some of the other judge stories won't happen exactly. It'll be close to this, but there'll be some nuanced differences, or maybe a step is missed. But this one happens exactly this way. The people are oppressed by Cushan. His second name, which only I'm not saying anymore, but I'll say it for now, Rishathame. His second name means double evil. Cushan, double evil. It's not a pleasant guy to, to live under for eight years, but it's, their, it's for their ultimate good. God gives them over to this tyrant leader so that it will loosen their grip on Baal, so that they will wake up and come back to God. God loves them enough that he won't let them go down the path to destruction. That's love. The, the least loving thing would be to let them go their way and serve false gods and go into destruction. The loving thing would be to intervene even if it's painful so that they see, they awake, they remember 
who God is and his glory and goodness and come back to him. After suffering, it says they cry out. The people cry out to the Lord, verse 9. You can see that at the bottom of the cycle. They cry out to the Lord, and uh, we don't know if they repented. It just says they cried out. Now, in the chapter before, when this, this pattern, this cycle is revealed, the chapter before, in verse 218, it says, The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So there, the picture we get is the people are d- distressed, and they groan, and God steps in and raises up a judge to free them. And so we know that, that God is compassionate. And here we don't know if they repented, but we know God is compassionate. And that's the important thing. God is compassionate on, their, on his people that when they cry out, he steps in to deliver. The point is that God delivers because of his nature. His nature is mercy. His nature is compassion. That's what we need to see here. Not that they did something great, but that God is compassionate. And number three, so he steps in to save. God's, uh, God's people forget him. God's people suffer. Lastly, God saves his people. Look at verse 9. When they did cry out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan. So here we meet our, the book of Judges. This is our first judge. He's called in verse 9, a deliverer. But it also says, verse 10, he judged Israel. And it also says that he saved Israel or that God saved Israel through him. So this gives us a picture into what this role is. Last week we said that it's not, a, uh, it's not someone in black robes in a courtroom. That's not what a judge is. It's someone that's raised up as a military leader to deliver the people of God when they are oppressed, to go to war against a foreign power. Uh, Now, he did have some judicial oversight. They do at some level in various times, so they do kind of judge in that way. But they also are used to save the people. So it would be fair to say they are saviors, lowercase savior. They, They come to save, and so they are saviors. They are deliverers. And of all the ones we're gonna see, I think Othniel, at least his story, is probably the best. You say, well, it wasn't a very exciting story. That's why he's the best. Because the other stories, we other judges, what we're going to see is they have wild stories where all kinds of things happen, sometimes very grievous things. But the stories all reveal their flaws, and they all reveal like, man, God, God really had to put up with a lot uh, in, in that judge. But here, all we get is the basics. Othniel he just gets the job done. His story is short. His story is sweet. There's no, he's not a drama judge. He's not Judge Judy just bringing drama to everybody. He's just, he just gets the job done. He's a meat and potatoes judge. That's, that's why he's great. Sometimes you just want efficiency and peace. A guy who's just faithful, a plain, boring, faithful judge that just gets it done efficiently. George Schwab, who wrote a commentary on this book and is a teacher, he wrote the following. He said, when I lecture on Othniel, I show my students a short clip from the 1995 movie Judge Dredd starring Sylvester Stallone. 
Stallone plays a street judge in a futuristic setting where judges police cities. The movie begins with a scene of Stallone's character. Judge Dredd is shouting to some villains, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged after a shootout, leaving them dead at his feet. He says with finality, courts adjourned. I then invite my students to imagine Judge Othniel in his role. Imagine Othniel shouting to King Double Evil, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged. Then after he dispatches the double evil king, he turns to all of Israel and he says with Stallone's face and voice, courts adjourned. Now that's a judge, Schwab writes. And that's the beauty of it. It's simple and efficient. Othniel is not a famous judge. Like we're going to read about Gideon or Samson. They're famous, but nobody who teaches like children's and teaches in a children's class and a children's ministry, never tells a felt board story about Othniel. You tell the story of Samson, but there's not even a cut-out felt figure of Othniel. He didn't even make the felt characters. And so you don't tell a story because there's so little to tell. His story is plain, it's basic, it's uneventful, and that's what makes him the model judge because the whole story points to God. Look at the verbs, rather, look at the subjects of the verbs in the passage. Verse 9, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here it is, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was up on him. Uh, He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan of Mesopotamia into his hand. The whole passage is revealing what God has done. The Lord raised Othniel up. Not Othniel. The Lord empowered him with the Spirit. The Lord took Cushan and gave him into his hand. His simple, here's a lesson really, his simple faithfulness is a platform for us to see the work of God. Simple faithfulness allows God to be on display rather than the individual to be on display. And that's the purpose of the book. That's the purpose of the whole Bible is that God is the one who rescues and saves. God is the merciful one who is compassionate and rescues his people. Now, It's interesting what happens. It says in verse 11, the land has rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. If we could put that cycle back up. So we've we've gone through, we've gone through, we're at 11 o'clock or 10, you know, whatever that is up there. So uh, we've gone through falling into idolatry. They're oppressed by Cushan. The people cry out. That's, that's literally what the passage says. God raises up a judge. That's Othniel. The Lord delivers Israel uh, through Othniel. Now we're at 12 o'clock. Uh, Israel serves the Lord. So it says there's rest. We're to assume there's no political animosity at this point, and evidently they're not doing evil. They're not serving uh, the false gods. They are uh, serving God. We found out in chapter 2 that the pattern was as long as the judge is alive, the people uh, serve the Lord, at least externally. They didn't serve idols. But look at the next verse out of our passage, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So if you come back next week, we'll be over here at, uh, you know, at 2 o'clock, Israel falls into sin 
and idolatry. The whole cycle will go over again. So here's what happens. Here's what we see. The judge is used to deliver the people. As long as the judge is alive, the people serve God. But when the judge dies, the people go back to their idolatrous ways. The the peace, the rest, the victory, the renewal, the revival, it's always temporary. It's always temporary. That leads Tim Keller to point out about this very verse, this passage. He wrote, for unending peace, this is temporal peace, for unending peace, we need a leader that does not die. We need a leader that does not die. He writes, only Jesus says to his people, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. That's the one. See, this passage, it's a great passage, but when you read the next verse, it's a downer. It sort of leaves you empty. You're like, wow, God did this great thing. He freed his people. They came back to him, evidently. There's peace. There's peace in the land. There's rest. But you know what? They went back and did the same stuff. How do we get out of the cycle? How do we get free? How is there rest in an ongoing and permanent way? Where is there real peace? It leaves us looking beyond Othniel. And the book is going to leave us looking beyond all the judges. And then we get into the kings, Saul and David, uh, in the next section of Scripture. And we're going to look beyond all of them. Because we're looking for a king, a prince of peace that brings permanent peace. And that's Jesus. The passage calls us uh, in an implicit way to Jesus. That is the glory of this. Othniel delivers from the enemy Kushan, and it's temporary, but Othniel points to the one who saves us eternally, who doesn't deal with a political enemy. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to set us free from a political or national threat. Jesus comes to deliver us from our greatest enemies, sin, death, the devil, judgment. Jesus delivers us from all of that for eternity. Othniel is a human savior, but Jesus is the true and better eternal savior who conquers death, the king who will return to make all things new so that we don't experience 40 years of rest, but we experience eternal peace and shalom in a new heaven and a new earth. This is what Jesus does. It's great what God does through Othniel, but what he does through his son is infinitely more glorious, and we're left longing for that king, that true king, Jesus Christ. So how do we apply a passage like this. I mean, here we are. How do you apply something, some little story about the little tribal battle that happened in the, you know, another part of the world 3,000 years ago? How is that possibly relevant today? I'll tell you how it's relevant. The point is we must remember Jesus and his work. We must remember the Lord. The whole cycle The whole cycle began in verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God. Again, it wasn't that they, they didn't recall his name. It wasn't that they couldn't remember basically what he did, that they, 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 they dropped all of that from their mind. It's not that. It was the problem was that God just wasn't as real to them anymore. They've forgotten what it was to live in relationship with him and for his people 
to walk with him. Here's what happened. They just didn't delight in God anymore. And that's where this passage is eminently relevant to every one of us. No, I don't think anybody's going to walk out of this room today and go to a Baal shrine and sleep with a religious prostitute. I don't think anybody here is going to do that. So yes, there are differences between them and us. But the reality is we're going to walk out of these doors in just a moment and be bombarded in the coming week with all kind of God alternatives, all kinds of substitutes, all kinds of places that you can look for, for meaning, for purpose, for comfort, for relief, for significance, for security, and those are all gods. When you look to something besides or someone besides God for those things, it is idolatry. And that's what happened here. See, they didn't delight in God. And so now they're no longer having their minds and their hearts shaped by his word and his promises. They forgot his promises. And we can forget about his promises as well. Their lives weren't weren't directed by their worship. I don't mean just what happens in this room for an hour plus on Sunday morning. I mean a life that is connected to him and his purposes for us, to him and his grace and mercy towards us. See, what happens is when they forgot him, the bales seem more real, and so they trust the bales because God just isn't enough. We can chase financial security because God isn't enough. We can chase a relationship that is perhaps illicit or not healthy but makes us feel good because God isn't enough. We can overeat, overdrink, take abuse prescription meds because God isn't enough. We can forfeit, sacrifice our family, our health to climb the cap corporate ladder to feel successful and have everyone recognize us as successful and worthy because God isn't enough. We can accumulate, accumulate for ourselves stuff and things so that we place our identity in the house we live in, the clothes we wear, the car we drive, the technology we own. We we identify with that because God isn't enough. When we forget, we lose spiritual vitality. We don't grow. We we don't live by the power of the Spirit. Instead, we dry up and we become increasingly vulnerable to the alluring gods around us. And what happens is we forget our story. We lose our way. We squander our calling when we could be taking good things like relationships and work and uh, our possessions, we could be taking good things and using them for the glory of God and for the good of loving our neighbor. We take those good things and make them ultimate things so that we put all of our trust in those things and ignore God. That's what we do. And when we do that, we're squandering our calling. We can waste weeks, months, years chasing other gods You can believe in Jesus and ultimately waste your life. You can fail to steward your knowledge of God, the word of God, the spirit of God in you, the people of God with whom you relate, and waste it living just like the Canaanites as opposed to living for God, 
to reveal him to the Canaanites rather than love the Canaanites, serve the Canaanites, care for them with the mercy of Jesus, bring light into their darkness rather than join them in the dark. So we must remember the gospel. It's easy to forget, friends, not the facts of the gospel. It's easy to forget Jesus. Not the person of Jesus, but to, to forget that, that he is alive and that that impacts my life, that, that forges my decisions, that governs my relationships, that affects my time. But here's really great news. I've been saying some hard things here. Here's really, really, really great news. God calls us never to forget But throughout the Bible, we find that God calls us to remember together. None of us are alone. You're not alone. You're not called to say, hey, take your Bible and go out in your week, and I hope you remember Jesus. Good luck. Let us know how it works out. That's not how it works. God calls us to remember together, and he gives us all the help we need to remember, the Word, the Spirit, and the church. God gives us the people of God so that we remember together. This is so good that that we help one another remember. So we gather here. We go through various, and I'm going to use this word in the best sense. God gives us rituals, we could say, practices, might be a better word. God gives us rituals and practices so that we remember. We gather here on Sundays and we sing. Why do we sing every week? We sing all these songs about Jesus. We're always singing about the cross. We're always singing about the resurrection. We're always singing about his victory. We're always singing about that he's the king. We're all sing, always singing about his faithfulness, that he's sovereign and rules and reigns. Why do we do that? Because all week long we forget. And when we come together, we see those words. We sing those words. We hear those words. We're next to our neighbor who's celebrating those words. And we sing them to God and we sing them to one another. And when we do, we remember. And we pray. Why did I pray today uh, for our new president? Because the scripture requires it and because he needs wisdom and that's the God, that's what the church should be doing. That's the godly thing to do. But also so that we remember something. That God is our king and gives wisdom to our leaders. We remember. We look above the politics of right or left and we say there is a king who rules over all and we're going to him and with faith asking that he would grant grace to our leaders, whoever they are. We pray. We hear God's word right now. Why am I teaching this? Why are we doing this? So we don't do verse 7. And they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. That's why we teach the Bible, to remember. We gather in small groups to remember as well. I read an example this week that was very helpful. Somebody said in in an example I read, they said, have you ever been in a small group and somebody reads a scripture and it's a wow moment. They say, this is what this scripture means to me. This is, it's alive to me. These words jumped off the page and they're helping me. And all of a sudden you go, yes, they're saying wow and that affects me. They're saying wow and all of a sudden now I'm entering into their wow. What happens is when we're in community, when one person experiences the grace of God through his word, by his spirit, in community, it spreads to dry hearts. It awakens sleepy believers. It says, yes, something I wouldn't have had if I sat home Wednesday night 
and watch Netflix instead of gathering on Zoom or in the living room and sharing the word of God and praying together. It it awakens me. We encourage one another and build each other up through the word. We remember together as we pray for each other. Have you ever been really distraught and had someone pray for you? This has happened to me countless times. And all of a sudden, at the end of prayer, they're praying about God's faithfulness, which I can't see. They're praying God's hope, which I have lost. They're praying God's power, which I have forgotten. And all of a sudden, at the end of the prayer, I'm like, yes, come on. He is real. I believe that. I remember I remember we remind each other. Israel reminded each other. They, they should have been reminding each other. The first guy that went over down to Baal Shrine, somebody should have said, what are you doing, brother? Don't you remember? God delivered us from Egypt. God said, worship no other gods. Let's return to him. But their community wasn't active, evidently, and they went to pot, The community life together involves us remembering what Christ has done, being strengthened by him, and then returning to our daily lives, uh, empowered with faith, empowered by his word, his spirit to bring him glory, to love our neighbor and honor him and be a light in the darkness in our everyday life. If the book of Judges teaches us anything, it's like this huge warning label that says, never forget the Lord your God. Because when you do, this is what happens. Eight years under the king double evil and squandering your calling so that the Canaanites don't know anything about Yahweh because you look just like them. That's our purpose as Grace Church. Why does Grace Church exist? So that we never forget That's why we're here today. We never forget Jesus. We never forget his word. Listen, you know one of the greatest tragedies of the pandemic is that here's what surveys are saying. I haven't heard a Christian tell me this personally, but the surveys are saying that many evangelicals, after being separated from the people of God for so long, have come to the conclusion that they no longer need a church in the future. We don't need a church, they say, because we, we've got the Bible and spirit, I'm spiritually and we've got healthy practices and we're doing fine. So they're, they're musing that they don't need the church. That is the musing of absolute fools. You have already forgot. You're in the middle of the cycle. You think you don't need a church? I'm not saying Grace Church. I'm saying any church. You think you don't need a church? You are in the cycle. You have forgotten God. You have forgotten that the story is never about individuals. It's God building a people for himself. This isn't an individual story. It's about the people of God. God's angry with whom? The people that have turned to the idols. You think you don't need God? You are already, you've left that story which says you have been saved to be incorporated into his people, to give and serve and love and mutually build each other up so that together you are a city set on a hill as a people. So now you've already forgotten that story and when you come to the conclusion, I don't need the people of God, I don't need the church, now you're writing your own story which says I can be spiritual I'm okay on my own, and you know what? I'll just navigate what I want to do and what seems right to me. And the book of Judges ends with this line. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes, and that is what you do when you say, the people of God are an option for me. I've got the Bible and Jesus in my heart, and that's all that I need. Please, brothers and sisters, resist that. That That's not only the pathway to idolatry, you're already there. 
You're believing lies, and it, will, it is destructive. May this not be the case. May evangelicals run back to the church. I know many can't meet right now, so I'm not talking. If you're watching online, I'm, this is not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about people that just separate themselves from the people of God. Finally, and here's how we're closing. Um, the band or, or Jared or whoever can come on up. Thanks for your patience. I, I realize I've gone long today. Finally, we remember together as we receive the Lord's Supper. This is what Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. It's a ritual. It's a living practice. It's a sacrament. It's whatever. Those are all fair terms. But it is a moment where we take physical bread, physical juice, and remember that we were saved outside of ourselves. We can touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, and and come to this reality that, you know what, this helps us remember. God meets us through this as we look to Jesus and thank him for what he did for us on the cross. And, and it, 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 it's a reminder, a renewal that our sins are forgiven, that the Spirit of God is with us. And the broken bread means not only that his body was broken so that we could be united to him, but united to one another. You don't take communion by yourself. You take it with the people of God. It's a reminder. We're in this together. Jesus, we're serving Jesus together, and we're committed by his power and what he's done for us not to let each other forget. That's why we sing. That's why we hear the word preached. That's why we pray. And that's why we receive the Lord's table. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.